Good morning, everybody. Oh, we're loud today. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Um, I, before we start Grand Rounds today, I want to thank Auden McClure, Karen Hike, and the Cook Eat Learn program for bringing us another delicious and healthy breakfast um, and for teaching us how to work with our patients on healthy eating. Um, we have a trivia prize award to give today. Um, the, this week's um, theme was Healthy Plate Revisited, but the prize today, the trivia question was around last week's topic, or last um, session's topic, um, which was desserts and eating out. And the question was, name two strategies for eating healthfully when eating out or on the go. And we had really excellent answers from everybody today, um, but somehow this seems quite fitting that our, our winner today is Steve Bartels. Um, his response was, was um, always order the salad, drink lots of water versus lots of alcohol, and avoid the bread. Um, and use olive oil. So the prize today, 70% cocoa. I'm instructed that's important to say. Steve, I'll come to you. So thank you all for entering. You should all know when you pick up your healthy breakfast, there's a slideshow. And if you watch the slideshow, which is short, you might get some clues for answering the trivia um, contest, and um, that could increase your odds of winning. So, and the prizes are great, so. Um, and with that, we'll move on to medical grand rounds for today. Um, our speaker today is Richard Bezdeen, Dr. Richard Bezdeen, um, who has no conflicts to declare. Um, introducing him today will be um, Ellen Flaherty. I'm really happy to um, welcome, welcome Ellen to do the introduction. Um, she's a member of the uh, General Internal Medicine Community Geriatrics Team, and she's co-director for the Centers for, a for Health and Aging, along with Dr. Bartels. Um, I think it's most important to recognize Ellen, who was recently elected to be the um, president of the American Geriatric Society. She'll assume that role in May. And my understanding, my understanding is this, this is just the second time that a nurse leader has been elected to that position, so it's a real honor. Um, and we're very fortunate to have Ellen with us. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you, Kelly, and thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, thank you to Medicine for uh, co-sponsoring this today with the uh, Dartmouth Centers for Health and Aging. Uh, Dr. Bartels is here, as you know. Um, so we're really very pleased. And I'm most honored and pleased uh, to introduce my colleague and friend, Dr. Richard Bezdeen. Um, Richard insisted uh, that I keep this very short, which I have to say is a huge challenge. Um, Richard is a professor of medicine and director of the division. There we go. He doesn't want me to repeat anything. Um, let's see, what else is not up there? Well, I don't know. Maybe he has to, like, I don't know, move down the slide a bit. A bit. Um, Richard is also a medical director and a board member of the American Federation of Aging Research and past president of the American Geriatric Society and past chair of its board of directors. Um, Richard was also the first chief medical officer for what is now known as CMS. Um, and needless to say, there are uh, uh, many, many, many publications and many, many, many awards that I promised Richard I, I wouldn't share with you. But uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Richard here. 
I think I'm going to generate feedback, actually, if I turn this on. You can hear me fine, and I'm not going to dance or uh, demonstrate gait disorders today. So I'm, I'm going to hang out at the microphone. Um, and it is a delight to be here. I have so much I want to tell you. The only possible solution is to say every third word. <laughs> uh, I think you have the learning objectives on your uh, attendance sheet. So let's start with an ain't it awful slide. Um, in this hotbed of health policy, I'm sure you know that population health outcomes in the United States are mediocre at best and abysmal in some domains. And I'm just going to look at this with you. Uh, even after uh, several years of implementation of the Affordable Care Act, uh, we still rank last, not just among the wealthy nations, but last uh, among nations that have strongly organized governments uh, in terms of health insurance. Um, a World Health Organization metrics of preventable deaths, uh, those are deaths under 75 from the conditions listed on the slide. We rank last. Um, we're doing better on smoking cessation. Actually, we're now down to a little over 18%, but still 50% of cardiovascular deaths and 90% of COPD deaths, which are uh, numbers one and three or four uh, annually in the United States. Uh, tobacco-related. We are a world leader, numero uno, in percent population of, with obesity <clears throat> and deaths related uh, to obesity diseases. Healthy life expectancy, that's the years of life lived until the average age of onset of disability in a population. We're 29 in the world, but there's a good chance next year we could beat Serbia. <laughs> Literally, this is the truth. We rank just, just behind Serbia. So, and it's the old people driving a lot of this, not all of it, um, which is why I'm here. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I talked too much at dinner last night. The demographics, you all know, uh, in much of the world, Health care for older persons threatens financial survival. It's still most acute in the United States. Our problem, in addition to spotty insurance coverage, uh, is that our model remains a post-World War II model uh, for acute illness and trauma, whereas chronic disease is now more than 85% of our health care expenditures. Uh, most care for older people provided by non-geriatricians, thank God for the general internists and everyone else who's trying to do a good job, but these health professionals need geriatrics knowledge and skills. Um, I, uh, I have a hit team from Rhode Island uh, that will travel. For the next time I hear, I take care of a lot of old people, I are a geriatrician. Um, just Clinical experience is not enough. And geriatricians are needed to teach optimal care of older people across the educational pipeline in every specialty and to do the research to improve the care. And in my view, and this is all my view, obviously, I take full responsibility, managing the, about 5% of the most frail. 
So the system challenge is to develop a rational, needs-driven system of care that we are the best in the world at saving a life in jeopardy in the United States. Or as one Tea Party congressman was heard to say a couple of years ago when they were trying for the 14th time to uh, disembowel the Affordable Care Act, we have the best health care system in America and don't you mess around with it. Um, but fundamentally, we still sit around in our meccas, and this is one of the most attractive me meccas I've ever seen. Uh, I, have, I have hospital envy, uh, and I've only walked through the corridors this morning. Um, but we sit and wait for the patients to show up, and with chronic disease that festers and bubbles, uh, invisibly for years, if not decades, before symptoms appear, by the time these pa patients show up, uh, we can save their lives, but usually they are disabled for the long term. Um, multiple chronic conditions, high, you know, frequent flyers, high utilizers, whatever you want to call, call them, it's the old people. And so the principle, and it is, <sighs> kind of boring. You know, nothing happens when you do prevention properly, and I'm talking mostly secondary and tertiary prevention, is to assess and identify risk factors in old people before they become dependent, when they are ADL, IADL independent, and intervene so that these terrible things never happen. Falls, delirium, adverse drug events, infections, aspiration pneumonia, heart failure, you know, getting never mind to the hospital but to the intensive care unit without an advance, not never mind a written advance directive, but without a goals of care conversation. And, uh, you know, the way to do this is assessment, interventions, and continual goals of care conversation. It was Terry Freed in the annals, it's close to 10 years ago, who pointed out that an advanced directive is not useless, but it almost never gets it right. So you can write down what you don't want and then something different happens. You know, you say you don't want to be on a ventilator, you don't want to be... Um, um, resuscitated, and then the issue is dialysis, and the patient can't participate. So what we emphasize, and we have a curriculum across all, almost all the specialties in our environment, is how to conduct a goals of care conversation and do it every day. Not with the same patient every day, but every day every clinician who works in a hospital and in an ambulatory setting should be having goals of care conversations and become expert at it. So that's my palliative rant. Um, these key elements of care, I, I get bored reading slides, uh, but communication, decision making, social determinants of health. We now have a 24 student track in our medical school that they apply separately from the other 120 slots. Uh, and it's all about social determinants of health. It's called, uh, let me get it right, primary care and population medicine. Uh, but it's social determinants of health. Comprehensive assessment, the value proposition, you know, is this really worth it? And the worth it is not so much about money. It is at a system level, but for individual patients, are they going to live long enough to 
enjoy the benefits of the proposed uh, diagnostic or treatment intervention. Um, and it's where I most often am provoked to use one of my favorite uh, analogies about patients who should not be buying green bananas don't need screening colonoscopies. <laughs> buying green, I, I grew up in New York and that was a common metaphor for any minute now, she's going to be dead. And we, you know, the, the key question, here I am interrupting myself, but the key question you should be asking on a daily basis if you take care of vulnerable older people, would you be surprised if she's dead in six months? And if you wouldn't, before you start clicking from the pick list of diagnostic or treatment options, think about that. And, okay. So this comes directly from uh, CMS uh, in 2014 and is still their framework on dealing with multiple chronic uh, conditions. That should be MCC, shouldn't it? Not MMC. Um, so all of this except the two that are grayed, G-R-E-Y-E-D, grayed out, um, are really core geriatrics. Evidence-based models, appropriate outcomes defined at the beginning, prevent the new onset and progression of these conditions, and evaluate the models. And there's money for this. That I took out the five other slides because these are the ones that are uh, mostly relevant. Yes, we can afford new Medicare investments. Um, it was in August of uh, 2014 that the New York Times business section had a headline about the projections for costs of Medicare going down, going sharply down. I think I took out the data slide, uh, so I'll only tell you that the projections from 2010 were way more expensive than the projections of 2014, and it was a delta of, um, of uh, $1,400 uh, per beneficiary, and if you multiply that by uh, now, it, it's actually estimated that there will be almost 70 million uh, sorry, 62, that's correct, 62.5 million in 2019 uh, beneficiaries. That turns out to be uh, almost $90 billion. So I'm going to start with my evidence-based models of, of care in the hospital, which is still where the most money is spent, but as scientists here pointed out now, two years ago, I believe, maybe it's a year and a half. Although there's enormous regional variation in Medicare spending, the major contributor to that is not, to the variation, is not hospital care, it's post-acute care. And it's not even post-acute care in the nursing home anymore, the SNF care, it actually is home health. And so, but, but let's talk about the hospital anyway. Um, this was kind of a fun slide to generate. So the impairments uh, that older people have, uh, not eating, falling, incontinence, delirium, drugs, 
uh, and immobility lead to these common problems in the hospital. You know, this is what hospital medicine is all about, and intervening once they occur is kind of very discouraging because the patients rarely recover physical or cognitive function. And the idea is to get in there before they happen and, again, prevent them. So the very first model that I know of to undergo rigorous evaluation was the Geriatric Evaluation and, Ma uh, and Management, or GEMU. Uh, Larry, I was on the phone with Larry just the other day. Um, uh, in the early 1980s, showing that in a randomized trial, now this was not just geriatric assessment. The geriatricians also owned the patients. Very important. We, learned, we did a trial uh, when I was still in Boston, and we did it in Rhode Island at the Rhode Island Group Health, and it was of geriatric consultation, and we had letters written, and they were absolutely stellar. The best ones ran five pages about things to do to improve care of these individual patients. And you know what? They didn't do it. And it was a negative trial. So owning the patient's very important. So they cut mortality in half. Nursing home discharges were more, reduced by more than 50%. Fewer hospital days, nursing home days, rehospitalizations, better physical function. You know, just everything good. That was 1984. And this is maybe an exception to my theme of these interventions being mostly ignored. Uh, the model, uh, evidence-based models of care, because the VA does have GEMUs at many of their hospitals, because the VA can do stuff. Uh, but still, um, it's not all of them. Uh, the second um, is the ACE unit. How many of you have heard of ACE units? Acute care, not many, okay, so point taken. Uh, this is work done by Seth Landefeld in the early 90s uh, at Case Western, uh, a randomized trial of medical inpatients over 70. Uh, the units then were physically customized to the needs of older patients as well as workflow customized as well as a, a, a consistent staffing of people who knew how to take care of older people. So the environment was modified to promote mobility and orientation, patient-centered nursing-initiated protocols for rehab, early intervention, um, added mission discharge planning would begin, and medical uh, care review to prevent harm, and uh, 10 ACE studies between 95 and 2009 showed better prescribing practices, big deal. The question is, what's the outcome? And there were fewer adverse drug events, better physical function, improved satisfaction, reduced nursing home use, reduced restraint use. And then uh, there was a 2013 uh, update by Flood and colleagues showing um, reduced costs, mostly because of reduced hospital days, and that big metric which our hospital this past year uh, paid a, a, had a reduction in reimbursement of $2 million because of a higher than average rehospitalization rate. So our 
Rhode Island Hospital. That's a little dirty laundry. Um, um, so I can't go home, and you can help me find a job in, uh, in New Hampshire. Um, so the next model is not ACE, but MACE. Isn't this great stuff? Mace and Ace and Grace and Pace, my God. Uh, poetic geriatrics. So Mace is a mobile Ace unit, so taking the principles demonstrated in Ace units over more than a decade and applying them with a team that goes around the hospital, which makes more sense, you know, hospital administrators hate dedicated beds because they lose flexibility in places that have trouble not filling the beds, have trouble finding beds for the patients. And I gather you're in that boat as well as we are. Uh, so the, the MACE done at Sinai, uh, published in 2013, they showed f statistically significantly fewer adverse events. Oh, by the way, all everything, all the outcomes I'm showing you are statistically um, valid significant. Shorter length of stay and patient satisfaction, which is the way our physicians are being evaluated these days, probably not here, right? Um, and the transitions are better. So the HELP program, how many of you know about HELP? It's a little better disseminated. They're Probably are a couple hundred hospitals now that are using help. That's Sharon Inouye's um, intervention, hospital elder life, initially to prevent delirium, but it turns out to prevent other bad stuff. Uh, and again, the, this is monotonous. It relies on assess, thorough assessment, comprehensive geriatric assessment, prior to stuff happening and it happens less. And this was the first randomized trial published, God, it seems only yesterday, but it was 1999. Uh, Sharon showed that she could reduce incident delirium in a high-risk elderly population on medical wards at uh, Yale New Haven Hospital by one-third. Now, that means two-thirds still of this high-risk group got delirious, and the bad news is the ones who got delirious in spite of the intervention did not have any amelioration of their delirium. It was just as bad, uh, just as uh, long-lasting. So the geriatric, I'll bet a lot of you know about this movement from SAEM uh, and the American Geriatric Society to geriatricize emergency departments. Are you doing that here? Yes? Well done. I'm not surprised. Uh, both physical and workflow changes. The outcomes are fewer return visits, better satisfaction, higher independence in ADL, fewer not just revisits to the ED, but fewer hospitalization uh, readmissions uh, and increased screening. And so the intervention is kind of boring and simple, training the staff in both geriatrics and how to have a goals of care conversation. One of the things I'm still trying to get money for in our environment is to put a palliative nurse at the point of triage in the ED so that they don't get their head, chest, abdomen, and pelvis CT before the history is taken, but rather are diverted to a different physical space and a goals of care conversation occurs.
delirium, coming from a nursing home, over age 80, this is not complicated. Um, and it works. So I'm going to come to my current sweetheart, which is uh, geriatric, geriatrician co-management of vulnerable elderly hospitalized patients. Um, the principles are very clear. The geriatricians collaborate with other specialties. Uh, the most common one across the United States, and there are probably now 75 places doing it, where geriatricians are, are there places, 75 places with geriatricians? Not exactly, but I can talk about that afterwards if anybody's interested. But hip fracture patients, trauma patients, uh, general surgery patients, neurology patients, internal medicine patients, all these patients, whatever gets them into the hospital, suffer the same catastrophes. They fall, they get delirious, they get adverse drug effects, they get pressure sores, they get infections, often catheter-associated. You know, we do that. Uh, and what the geriatrician does is evaluate these patients at admission and sees them daily. And equal ownership and responsibility by the geriatrician and the specialist. The patients are seen by both with daily rounding together. The geriatrician, in addition, rounds with the nursing staff. Each the geriatrician's write orders, kind of heresy, writing orders on surgical patients, orthopedic patients, yes. Uh, interdisciplinary management, care coordination, shared decision making, and the outcomes across multiple, not just US, but also international studies. Shorter time to surgery for hip fracture, shorter length of stay, fewer cardiac con complications, less delirium, infection, thromboembolism. So there's a whole bunch of references here. I've uh, given Ellen and left on the desktop the slide set. Uh, any of you want these, she can give them to you. My view about slides is that the more people who look at them and take ownership of the slides, the less it costs me to develop the slide set, um, which is why I'm blowing through them so quickly. Um, at Brown, we now have four co-management programs. The hip fracture program, which has grown now to include high-risk elderly patients with other fractures. You know, you put an old lady in bed with a complex ankle fracture or cervical spine fracture, the same things happen to them. We have a collaboration with the trauma surgeons. Yes, the trauma surgeons will collaborate. Um, <laughs> Moving on, there's so much I want to tell you. We have one with the elective joint replacements for pain. By the way, the trauma program is actually for over 75-year-olds. We're a level one trauma center like you. We have 3,500 trauma admissions annually, and 1,000 of them are over 65, 500 over 80. And before our program, the mortality was astronomical. They come in with two ribs and a finger, and they die on the 14th hospital day. Not so much anymore. Our newest one, uh, colorectal uh, surgery over the age of 75, 
Most of the colorectal patients are cancer, uh, are cancer patients, and most of them are elderly. And if I have time, I'm going to show you data that are a week old from the colorectal program. It's only a couple slides. It, they're early data, but again, thrilling. And then the last one that I think of as co-management um, is palliative medicine with oncology. Um, because my division is geriatrics and palliative medicine, I can call that uh, a geriatrics uh, collaboration. So here are our outcomes. This is a pre-post comparison of the first two years of implementation of the hip fracture program. Length of stay decreased 30% more than two days. The proportion discharged home more than doubled. Inpatient mortality decreased by 70%. And uh, um, satisfaction both for the patients and the families are over the top compared with mediocre satisfaction scores from the hip fracture patients prior. Rates of delirium lower, a trend toward fewer catheters, and a very conservative uh, revenue calculation of more than $3 million a year on 225 fractures. So here, oh boy, this is terrific. You're doing a great job. Uh, the, these are the last week's data. Uh, this is a population of the first 44 colorectal patients seen. They're over the age of 70 initially. Um, uh, and the control group is a, a little over 100 patients who were seen, the, the, the co-managing geriatrician is in the hospital only from 7 a.m. to noon, Monday through Friday. So the control group are the ones who had their pre-op assessment by a general internist hospitalist rather than by a geriatrician. So overall, over age 70, we only saw uh, a half, a little more than a half a day decrease in length of stay. But when you look at the over 80s or those with a Charlson score of greater than three, one and a half days off the length of stay. And I would add the co-managing geriatrician is a rookie, right out of fellowship, um, and she, like everything else, is getting better with age. <laughs> Here are the post-operative complications. Again, um, in yellow are the complications um, in the uh, hosp generalist hospitalist uh, patients. Um, and what you see is a lot of yellow and not much blue. The blue is uh, the co-management patients seen and managed with the colorectal surgeons by our star geriatrician. And what you see is that except for delirium and heart failure, there were zero of these very important complications of uh, mortality, rehospitalization, delirium, arrhythmia, MI, respiratory failure, and heart failure. So delirium is a little bit complicated because on the patients seen in co-management, they had the CAM done twice a day. These patients uh, were detected to be delirious only 
if they were found running nude out the door in the wintertime. <laughs> Otherwise, there was no effort at ascertainment. So the, the likelihood actually is that the delirium rate in this population is 50 to 70% if you use national data. So, so these are stunning. And then the last one that got the attention of the hospital president when I met with him on uh, Tuesday, and I talked to him on the phone while driving up yesterday about expanding the co-management program, almost $10,000 per patient in savings. And again, um, this doesn't take into account the mortality or rehospitalization expenses. This is simply a length of stay. So that's pretty damn good. Uh, okay, get me off co-management. I should have a clock ticking here. We're doing fine. Um, I think of co-management as extending to transitional care. And I know you have a transitional care program here. Um, and I'm not going to go through this in great detail. There are three <coughs> data driven, published models uh, of transitional care that reduce rehospitalization rates. Um, Eric Coleman's uh, was not the first, but where, oh, there it is, uh, but is probably the best developed and most widely used, the care transitions intervention coaches to empower the patients and families to own and understand the problem list of the patient to manage their medications, to get follow-up care quickly. You, I'm sure you know the data on rehospitalization. Half of them occur in the first week, and the initial target in most places was to get a follow-up appointment within two weeks. What's wrong with this? Um, uh, and, and then to know uh, the fourth pillar, know what red flags are for reemergence of the condition, their uh, major conditions, and most important, a cell phone number. Someone to call when weight goes up or shortness of breath recurs. Uh, this is not complicated. It's hard to do because it's across settings of care. You know, here here are. You know, our 1952 model of medical care. You know, the silos are good because you get the experts all together doing one thing. Unfortunately, the same old lady gets one thing five times in the first 10 days after hospital discharge. Uh, Brian Jack's model of re-engineered uh, Re-engineering discharge, uh, follow-up visits, teaching management, it, they all kind of do the same thing, follow-up, coordination of care. Mary Naylor's model uh, was actually uh, the first transitional care management, uh, nurse-led in hospital and at home. You know, are you getting bored with this? It's the same thing again and again and again. And geriatricians know how to do it. And it's highly teachable and transferable. If we relied on geriatricians to do this at a national level, we would have absolutely no impact on population health. This has to be a tech transfer. It's why I came here. Um, and of course, this is the seat of some of the knowledge that needs to be, be transferred. And then there are a ton of 
either published or ad hoc, unique to the institution hybrid models of transitional care. I'm going to skip that. So this is the fun stuff. So if this is so damn good, why isn't everybody doing it? Why did the Hartford Foundation just give me a one-year $400,000 planning grant to disseminate and market the hip fracture intervention? It's published. You know, people say it's 17 years from publication to implementation. Well, some of this stuff is 25 years old. You know, we failed the 17-year test. <laughs> so the barriers with very shorthand potential remedies in parentheses, financial difficulty in the health system. We don't have a nickel to invest. We can't give you another palliative care slot for fellowship. I know the palliative care fellows save us uh, a half a million dollars a year, but we're a hundred positions over the cap already. That's what I heard a couple weeks ago. Of course, it was the 11th time I heard it. But I keep, you know, you have to be persistent. So the, the remedy for difficult financial difficulty in the health system it is, in fact, these are circumstances in which you have to spend your way out of deficit. Uh, and part of our intervention for the hip fracture model is a generic business plan demonstrating gain from the model of care, but also tailored to the environment that is considering adoption. Shortage of geriatricians, you know there aren't enough geriatricians in America to take care of 2% of the aging population, which continues to grow every day, and the number of geriatrician doesn't. The number of geriatricians has uh, actually gone down over the past uh, 10 and 5 years. So uh, reassigning receptive generalists um, who are eager to increase their skills in managing older patients, specifically recruiting people to these very exciting roles that are being funded in hospitals. You know, hospitals are buying this stuff. Not enough, but they get it, and, and uh, in our own environment, our hospital loses money. How can an academic hospital lose money? We're the only game in town. Well, there are other hospitals in Rhode Island, but they manage. So, um, um, Getting the hospital to front the cost of these co-management and other models is um, a teachable skill. The arguments are strong. Um, but recruiting and retraining, again, uh, people who are eager to do this, and when there's a salary behind it and an exciting uh, evidence base, I think that the general medicine community um, is very recruitable. A third is skepticism. Yeah, well, it works up in Providence, but here in substitute any really large city, um, it won't work here. Well, it will work, and I, it, we actually have now 50 places of the 100 that the implementation grant says it will do, and we have a three-year follow-on proposal that will be considered uh, 
in the spring by the Hartford Foundation. Uh, inertia, that's a huge barrier. Um, identifying local champions, system-wide grand rounds, uh, local consultation. Um, and then there are clinical leaders who don't want to buy this. You're going to put a geriatrician on my hip fracture floor writing orders? Unfortunately, our experience was exactly the opposite. That was our first co-management program. It's a great story. Uh, our chair of orthopedics, Mike Ehrlich, who is legendary, one of the strongest academic programs in the country, accosted me in the parking lot of Rhode Island Hospital at 6.30, one dark, freezing, Feb well, maybe not by your standards, but by <laughs> Rhode Island standards, it was really cold. It was certainly below freezing. Uh, came over in his inimitable way, and he said, hey, Dean, I, I, I was dean of the medical school, 2002 to 2005. So it was in 2008, and he said, we have the best infection rate, meaning lowest, in our hip fracture patients in the country, but our mortality is too high. What he actually, I said then is, so you want help? to not kill so many old ladies? And he said, yes. And that's how the program started. And, and he went to the CEO and committed $50,000 of his own funds to get the program started. So everybody needs an angel. I'm sure you have some around here. I, I think we're, now we have an evidence base that we may not need Mike Ehrlich's in every one of the specialties uh, around the country. So the, and resistance is becoming less common. So this is the practice change strategy. Eric Coleman, again, with the help of the Hartford Foundation, has the practice change fellowships and more and more practice change strategies implemented at many, many places. Uh, are any of you familiar with the, I know Ellen is, no, nobody else. Somebody here actually who has gone through the program. I don't know if it's here. Steve Lou. Well, he didn't need. He didn't need to be. <laughs> He's out Yeah, right. Uh, but but it's a set set of strategies. Yeah, obviously a business plan, a toolkit with assessment, order, and management sets, nursing protocols. You know, it was only last year that we got the CAM implemented uh, on our medical service. You know, routinely that the nurses do, you know the CAM, the Confusion Assessment Method for the Detection of Delirium. Sharon Inouye uh, developed that. Um, having, uh, obviously, education programs for the residents and staff. Um, having an elevator conversation. If you want to sell something, sit down and write the elevator conversation. Two minutes. If you can't make clear your idea in two minutes, you don't understand it. Have it ready and have everyone who's going to be doing the selling uh, prepared. And then negotiating access to a senior executive in the health system. We're blessed at Brown. John Murphy is our executive vice president for physician affairs. He followed me by two years as president of AGS. Uh, he, you had, so actually, the bar is higher for us, but that's okay because uh, we have a lot of data. Um, 
so the way you do it if you don't have a friend at court, the way we do, colleague-to-colleague uh, -colleague communication by a leader in a health system with successful implementation of the model. You know, these guys uh, in the University uh, Health System Consortium in UHC love telling each other about good stuff. They share slide decks um, and they love to one-up one another. Uh, you can arrange a local visit, invite clinical chiefs and the geriatricians to a meeting with health system executives. So that this is, is fairly straightforward, but in the aggregate is a powerful package uh, for intervention. So this is uh, the f future of the field. Uh, there's no question, and I've lived through it, I declared for geriatrics in 1972. I'll bet there are people in the, many people in the room who have, weren't born yet. I had to go to Europe to train and came back to my faculty job at Harvard in immunology and infectious disease, determined to build an American program. We did. Uh, and since that day, uh, I have documented the slings and arrows and slurs uh, hurled at, at the field and at individual geriatricians. So one solution for the trouble with identity and respect it may well be the dissemination um, of these evidence-based models of care. Demonstrate the value to the health systems and the patients rather than starting with our colleagues, um, actually our colleague, our colleagues at home are very receptive now. Priority one from two Hartford Foundation funded geriatrics leading, uh, leadership planning processes in 2013, and I participated in both, uh, was the dissemination of evidence-based models of geriatrics care. So this slide set has been in evolution since 2012. These nine models, I've talked about not all of them, but many of them, and there's the Ace, Mace, Pace, Grace. Uh, we need one more for a basketball team. Um, and co-management, I've talked about. Uh, do I have another slide? That's it. Look at that. <laughs> Under budget, on time. So I would love, this is the fun part for me, to have questions or comments from you. And thanks for being attentive and laughing in the right places. Thank you very much. I'll open it to the room for questions. I'm sure there are many. None. Well, I have one to start. So, oh, there, there was uh, one. Sorry. I missed it. One of the changes that we've all seen after the, the Rubenstein trial in 1984 is the loss of continuity from the outpatient to the inpatient setting. If I'm remembering the article well enough, uh, it depended on, on that knowledge of the patient. Um, so that, the, that loss of continuity is now ubiquitous. And I, I'm wondering if you could comment um, on the, the benefits versus the losses of the switch from outpatient management to hospitals management. So that's all about transitions of care. Um, I can tell you, even within our geriatrics and palliative medicine division, when these patients who have been cared for in a, one of the four co-management programs transition either to a primary care physician or to 
sniff and our geriatrics fellows and faculty and palliative care fellows and faculty are providing that care in the sniff or in the ambulatory setting, we have trouble. And if you know, talk about reinventing the wheel, we had to put in an additional process for the transitions to ensure the adequate communication from one setting to the other. And it literally would be from one of our faculty to one of our former fellows whom that faculty member mentored. So it's not about knowing who it is. It's about managing the transition. And I think, you know, in our hospital at least, the case managers get this. We have, in addition to case management, we have a transitional care management department. Those two leads are both nurses, uh, actually both are nurse practitioners, but they're administrators. And they work together and they work with the sites of discharge. Obviously, internally, we are doing that coordination. But I make the point that we had to do it. It doesn't naturally happen. And it gets harder and harder with shorter length of stay and more complexity. So it's a work in progress. I wonder if you would consider the following paradox, that with training more and more geriatricians to do primary care, that primary care physicians, uh, people in the community, are letting that knowledge go. That, in fact, they're becoming less serious about the critical stuff that they should know about taking care of more and more older people. And that this paradox may be self-perpetuating. Well, fortunately, in my environment, I don't have to worry about that because we don't have enough geriatricians. I know most places have plenty to do the primary care of older people. No, I, I, obviously, I'm, I'm uh, uh, making a joke. I think uh, all my career, I have believed that geriatrics education not only is a team sport, but in fact, should have its focus outside geriatrics. And rather than building large fellowship programs, almost all our educational interventions have been, and I've advocated this at a national level, have been with the specialties, and I'll say this aggressively, who are allowed to take care of old people. And it's everybody except for peds and pure OB. And so I don't think it's a paradox. And I would say to you, my t education target is exactly those general internists and family physicians and cardiologists and orthopedic surgeons. You know, they're all taking care of the soon-to-be 60 million older Americans, at least who are on Medicare. Um, and so it's their education, indoctrination, and embracing. You know, they are on our team. It's not a we them, and, uh, and or us. Uh, it's, uh, it's we they. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, does that, I hope that helps. Uh, one of the other major problems in transitions is uh, our cur current communication relies so much on electronic health records. Uh, which have a very high noise to uh, information ratio. Um, and how do you propose 
or how do you do it in, at Brown uh, with uh, better supplementation of that information? Some of which is critical, a lot of which is not, um, to uh, uh, be between providers as you make those transitions. So we had a morbidity and mortality yesterday morning of an incredible clinical catastrophe. And the obvious failure was that nobody talked to each other. We're, we, have, we went epic in, uh, in March of 2015. We went live. And it's made things worse. The cut and paste and the volume of data that accompanies every patient, uh, no one would ever sleep if they took the time to master those data. Face-to-face -face is best, but these are really good. And when you, we share cell phone numbers and a simple text to say that we need to talk about patient Charlie in the next two hours, when should I call you? And that's what we do. I mean, we go back. It's, it's using a great technology, but it, it has to be individualized communication among providers. I, I know no uh, the electronic record has made it so much worse. I mean, I used to be able to read my handwriting. I can't anymore. I was saying this morning, I, I write things maybe twice a week. So I've lost the skill of legible writing. That was a very nice review of, uh, of very important information. I'm curious how much a healthcare system actually matters in this, which is to compare the U.S. system, which isn't a system at all, right. to the VA or to foreign countries like Britain or some of the European countries which have coherent healthcare systems. How much of a difference does that make? Everything. <laughs> all, all of this evidence gathering and taking the trouble to develop the slides and the rhetoric that goes along with the slides is really swimming against the tsunami. You know, if we had a system of care, system means based on a needs assessment and interventions appropriate to the identified needs, we wouldn't have to do, I wouldn't have to do all this. You know, I could retire to my squash career and, you know, never touch another old person. So I, I don't mean to sound, I'm not cynical at all, uh, but it is frustrating. And all I can say is uh, the Affordable Care Act is a baby step in the right direction. And if we have, uh, never mind, I'll stop. <laughs> I know this is an issue that Ellen has thought about as well. Um, as a former general internist, I grandfathered into a geriatric practice in my mid-career. Bless you. And, and so I have a couple of questions. That's no longer uh, um, available to general primary care. Physicians. Correct. And I, by the way, I think that's a mistake and have been advocating. Uh, and, and there is a, a, a program of advocacy and a group working within uh, the AGS on exactly that issue, but probably to no avail. Well, so that's the question. So if there's a dropping incidence of geriatricians in communities, of course. Uh, 
How do you incent CMS to say, look, if you want to educate and disseminate geriatricizing this care, maybe you should be looking at primary care physicians and going forward rather than starting at hospitals, and including some specialists. And uh, you're so right on. I, I, you know, I learned a long time ago one of the uh, res the best response to a good comment question like that is to say right on. Um, I, I would only say the the approach it has to be one of collegiality and embracing, and uh, if the educational goal really is the community of practice across not only specialties of medicine but across disciplines. We're all in this together. I mean, if we fail, the country fails. You know, this is serious. The impact of healthcare economics is at the top of the heap. I, I were CMS. Not only was I the first chief medical officer, I was the director of the Health Standards and Quality Bureau, which policed, improved, measured, regulated quality of care for Medicare and Medicaid. It's why I stayed long after I could afford to. And we made small differences. CMS still is offering new GME slots for primary care that is geriatrics oriented. Nobody's taking advantage of it. So I, I, it's not a, really a good answer. I just have a question about your experience with embracing this within the medical student community. Like if you have a whole separate track for social determinants of health and primary care, would aging health as a social determinant of health? Yeah, I, I teach in that curriculum. Like, how can we help young people whose ageism is so... I have two teenage kids who think old people are awful. <laughs> and this whole notion of our culture being one of the youth and vision, how can we help young med students get the notion that... So, so the short answer is, with $3 million over a nine-year period from the Reynolds Foundation, we managed to implement a very powerful aging curriculum for our medical students. Uh, and now for six residencies uh, and three practice groups. That's over a, a long period of time. Uh, and our approach has always been consistent with my view about educating broadly, has been an integrative one. Rather than capturing a two-week geriatric selective in the fourth year, we've integrated adequate aging-related content in every one of the first two years courses. It didn't hurt that when I wrote that grant, I was exiting the dean's office and launched a curriculum redesign. And I said to the Reynolds Foundation, and we did it. With the redesign, we marched along with adequate, adequate aging content, sometimes no more than five minutes in a particular curriculum segment. But we did it. And we evaluated it and counted it so that we have 80 identifiable hours in the first two years of medical school. And none of it is segregated. It's all integrated.
So we're at the end of our hour. Um, thank you very much again for coming. I hope you'll stay and answer additional oh, questions. If I, I'd come. love to. Um, and thank you for giving us a talk that not only framed the problem, but also some solutions. We, we hope. <laughs> thank you so much.